Uh, it's great to see all of you today. Welcome on this Sunday after Easter. Uh, for those of you that celebrated with us last week, it was a really wonderful Easter celebration. I don't know about you, but I am going to be listening to hear if the waffle roost truck drives down the alley during the service because I'm ready for some more chicken and waffles. Those are those were a wonderful punctuation to our Easter celebration last week. But uh, we're really glad that you're here this morning as we uh, as we continue on and uh, and worship together. This morning we're concluding our Signs of Life teaching series where we have been looking together at the seven. Signs that Jesus performed that are recorded for us in John's gospel, and, and what each one reveals about Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as well as the invitation that each one extends to us to believe into Jesus and experience life in him both today and for eternity. Last week, we celebrated Easter Sunday by looking at the story of Jesus' resurrection, and after John tells the stories of Jesus' appearances to Mary and to the disciples and to Thomas, we come to the verses that we looked at at the very beginning of our series, the verses that frame for us and reveal for us John's purpose for writing his gospel. John chapter 20, verse 30 says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. All right, so John says there that Jesus did many other signs that are, that are not recorded in this book, but these stories, the stories that he has included up to this point, were written so that his readers might believe into Jesus and by believing, have life in his name. Now, for as much as those verses, for as much as John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 might sound like the ending to John's story, they're actually not. Because there is one more story that was perhaps added later as an epilogue. And it's a story about another appearance that Jesus made to his disciples. If you'd like to join me in the scriptures this morning, you can turn or tap your way to John chapter 21, which is our text for today. John chapter 21, and we will start at verse 1. John chapter 21, verse 1. And as always, the text will be projected on the screens behind me here in the auditorium and also on the screen out in the courtyard if you would like to follow along there as well. John chapter 21, verse 1. Now, as we have looked at the stories of the seven signs, we have noted along the way that for John, what's more important than the signs themselves are their significance. Right? As we look at these seven signs and wonders, for John, what's more important than the signs themselves or what's more important than the miracles themselves are their significance. And this final story that we have here in John, in chapter 21, is all about that. It's all about significance, and specifically the significance of Jesus' resurrection. And so with that in mind, take a look with me now at John chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. It says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, 
but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And so our story this morning begins with a fishing trip. After Jesus' resurrection, seven of the disciples were back in Galilee, and Peter wanted to go out fishing, and the others decided to join him. And as we heard there in verse 3, this was not a great trip from, a, from the, when it came to catching fish. Right? The disciples, John says, caught nothing. And as they were going to the shore, returning to the shore early in the morning, John tells us that Jesus is there. And much like he did in the story of Mary's encounter with Jesus outside of the tomb, John again gives us as readers the privilege of knowing something that the disciples don't know. Because as the disciples are coming to the shore, they don't realize that it's Jesus. And I love the question that Jesus asks them there in verse 5. Friends, haven't you any fish? Right? So after this long night of fishing, there's Jesus calling out from the shore, hey guys, didn't you catch anything? You know, when our kids were growing up, every summer we would make a trip over to Reno to visit my parents. And it was always a special trip for the kids, in part because of some of the unique things that they got to do while they were at grandma and grandpa's house that they didn't get to do any other time. And one of those things was fishing. Uh, my dad used to take us to this really great spot called Maryland's Pond. And as you can see there in the photo, Maryland's Pond is picturesque, it's tranquil, and the Nevada Department of Wildlife stocks it with trout. And so what more could you ask for in a fishing spot, right? But of course, it doesn't matter how old or young you are, what makes fishing fun is catching something. And as you might imagine, taking four kids fishing, we had varying degrees of success with that over the years. Everyone obviously wants to catch something, but it was extremely rare for all four of the kids to catch a fish on the same trip. And so when, it would, when the time would come at the end of the day to call it quits and to leave Maryland's Pond, and there would invariably be one or two or possibly three kids who hadn't caught anything, you know, from my perspective, the last question that I would want anyone to ask one of my kids as we were on the way back to the car in the parking lot was, did you catch anything, right? Let alone, don't you have any fish? Right? Talk about pushing an already precarious emotional situation over the edge. That question would have done it. And I'm guessing that Jesus's question here wouldn't have sounded much better to the disciples as they were landing on the shore after spending all night fishing. Right. Some of them, after all, were professional fishermen, uh, and nighttime was the best time to fish. And so somehow, I don't imagine that Jesus' question would have landed particularly well. I'm guessing that some buttons might have been pushed. But look at verse 6. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so Jesus tells the disciples to cast their net over on the other side of the boat and they do it. And just like that, their net is so full that they can't even haul all of the fish into the boat. 
And verse 7 says that at that moment, the disciple who Jesus loved, John, the author of the gospel, recognized him. And look at how Peter responds. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. Now, there is an extent to which Peter's response here, right, of the spontaneity and the enthusiasm with which he jumps out of the boat, there's an extent to which that's totally consistent with Peter's character. And we see throughout the Gospels that Peter, among the disciples, was oftentimes the first to speak and the first to act. Right? That was just who Peter was. Last week, we saw Peter run to Jesus' tomb after Mary Magdalene told him what had happened and go charging right in. Right? And in that sense, Peter's response here in John chapter 21 seems normal. But at the same time, but when we zoom out and consider the broader context of John's narrative, as we find Peter here in John 21, there's also a sense in which Peter's response is truly extraordinary. But there's also a sense in which his response is truly extraordinary. You know, on the night before Jesus' arrest, he gathered his disciples together in the upper room to share one final meal together. And not only did Jesus tell them that night, that one of them was going to betray him. He also told them that all of them were going to fall away from him. And when Peter heard Jesus say that, he took exception. And he told Jesus that even if all of the others fell away, he would never disown him. And Jesus responded by telling Peter that on that very night, before the rooster crowed, he would deny him three times. Well, later that night, after Jesus was arrested, Peter, in an effort to stay true to his promise to Jesus that he would never fall away from him, he followed after Jesus. And as Jesus was being interrogated by the Jewish religious leaders, Peter was outside in the courtyard standing by a fire that the high priest's servants had made to keep warm. And it was there, around that fire, that Peter was asked three separate times whether or not he was one of Jesus' disciples. And each time Peter was asked, he denied it. And after the third time, just as Jesus had predicted, the rooster crowed. And we can only imagine what that experience must have felt like for Peter in that moment. What that experience must have felt like to hear the rooster crowing and to have Jesus' words come resonating back to him. We can only imagine the shame and the failure and the disappointment and the regret that Peter must have been feeling. And yet... Despite all of that, when John recognizes Jesus, we don't see Peter trying to hide somewhere like Adam and his wife did in the Garden of Eden. We don't see Peter busying himself 
with all the fish that they were trying to haul in to the boat. Instead, when John recognizes Jesus, Peter instinctively secures his outer garment, jumps into the water, and races to where Jesus is. That is Peter's instinct. And after everything that had happened, Peter still wants to race to Jesus. And after the rest of the disciples landed on the shore, Jesus told them to bring some of the fish that they had caught, and he invited them to have breakfast. And in this scene that is very reminiscent of the feeding of the 5,000 a few chapters earlier in John, Jesus took the bread and he gave it to the disciples. And then he also took the fish that he had provided and gave them to the disciples. Now, Jesus shared a lot of meals with people over the course of his ministry. And those meals are always significant. There's always something special that happens with Jesus and food and a table. And so not surprisingly, at this breakfast in John chapter 21, the meal is a catalyst for a significant conversation between Jesus and Peter. Look at John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. That is such a stirring scene. And such a profound picture, I think, of everything that the resurrection represents. As we see Peter reliving his denial of Jesus in reverse. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me more than these? And there's been a lot of speculation about about what Jesus is actually referring to with that question. And some have suggested that it might be a reference to Peter's vocation, right? That Jesus is asking whether Peter loves him more than his boat and his nets and all the other material things that come along with it because the disciples had just been out fishing. But a love for material things has not really been a part of Peter's story up to this point in John's narrative, which I think makes it unlikely that that is what Jesus is getting at. What we have seen from Peter, though, and most immediately in those hours leading up to Jesus' arrest, was that confident claim that even if all of the others fall away from you, I never will. And through that, Peter was effectively claiming that he loved Jesus more than the other disciples. And now, here they are at another meal together, and Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? As in, more than these other disciples here at the table. 
And look again at John chapter 21, verse 15. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Now I want you to notice there the difference between Jesus' question and Peter's response. Notice there the difference between Jesus' question and Peter's response. Jesus' question, Simon, son of Simon, do you love me more than these? is a question that invites comparison, right? It's a question that invites Peter to compare his love to Jesus to others, like he had at the Last Supper. But look at how Peter responds. Peter doesn't compare, and he simply says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, which I think demonstrates a tremendous amount of change for Peter in the aftermath of his denial. But that's just the beginning. Jesus asks Peter again, do you love me? And then a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And verse 17 says that after that final question, Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him for a third time. But as Peter re-experiences the pain of his denial over the course of this conversation, we see Jesus, I think, showing us the significance of the resurrection. As Peter re-experiences the pain of his denial over the course of this conversation, we see Jesus showing us the significance of the resurrection. And that is that the resurrection is a sign of grace. That Jesus' resurrection is a sign of grace. And much like we saw with Lazarus' resurrection back in John chapter 11, where Lazarus' emergence from the tomb embodied the present tense dimension of eternal life in this very tangible way, here we see Jesus, here we see Jesus embodying the grace of his act of sacrificial love on the cross and all of the forgiveness and all of the freedom that it represents We see Jesus embodying that for Peter to experience in this very personal way. Because Jesus is alive, Peter is able to experience forgiveness for his betrayal of Jesus in the courtyard through this conversation. Because Jesus is alive, Peter experiences freedom from the shame that would have undoubtedly accompanied all of that. Because Jesus is alive, Peter's relationship with Jesus is restored here. And then all of that grace that Peter experiences is punctuated by the way that Jesus restores him to his mission. It's all punctuated by Jesus restoring him to mission. Not only is Peter catching fish again, like literally through the miracle that Jesus performed, which harkens back to that original vision that Jesus had for his disciples, that they would become fishers of people. Not only is Peter catching fish again, but we also see Jesus, the good shepherd, commissioning him as a shepherd as well. Feed my sheep, Jesus says twice to Peter. Take care of my lambs, which of course Throughout the book of Acts, after Jesus' ascension, we see Peter living into, in some really 
powerful and profound ways. And so through the grace of the resurrection, Peter experiences in this really lovely way restoration from brokenness. He experiences hope coming out of despair. He experiences new life coming from death. That for Peter, the resurrection of Jesus is a total reset. That he is gifted the grace of a new beginning. He is gifted the grace of a new beginning. And all of those things are true for us as well as followers of Jesus. Those are all true for us as well as followers of Jesus. Like Peter, we too are recipients of the grace of the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection invites us to new beginnings as well. That is very much a part of what it means to experience life in Jesus' name today. That we experience life when we experience God's amazing grace. And so as we emerge from this season of Lent, how might God be inviting you to believe into the grace of the resurrection? How might God be inviting you to believe into the grace of the resurrection? You know, sometimes the journey through the Lenten season Right, as we walk in repentance and as we sit with our sin, sometimes that journey can stir up feelings of shame. But something that I really love about this encounter between Jesus and Peter is the way that it so powerfully reminds us that because of the resurrection, there is no shame. Right, because of the resurrection, there is no shame. Jesus' resurrection frees us from shame. And just like he was with Peter, Jesus is always present with us and he always welcomes us into his presence. He welcomes us, if you will, to have breakfast with him. And like Peter, through the grace of the resurrection, we are forgiven. Like Peter, Through the grace of the resurrection, we are restored. And so, if you are stuck somehow, believing that God will not or cannot forgive you, the grace of the resurrection powerfully reminds us that he does. And so maybe that's the new beginning that God is inviting you into. Or maybe God is inviting you into a new beginning related to living on mission. Because the other amazing thing about the grace of the resurrection, as Peter experiences it here, is that Peter's greatest failure is actually the thing that prepares him and equips him and qualifies him for mission. Peter's greatest failure is actually the thing that prepares him and equips him and qualifies him for mission. Our experience of God's grace actually prepares us to love and care for others. It actually prepares us to embody the presence of Jesus in his kingdom in the places where we are sent.
And I have to say that some of the most beautiful moments that I have experienced in ministry over the last 30 years are the times when I've witnessed someone out of their own experience of God's grace. I've witnessed someone walking alongside someone else who's experiencing the same thing. And that very much is the sweet sound of God's amazing grace. How is God inviting you to believe into the grace of the resurrection? That that amazing grace that saves us, that amazing grace that finds us, that amazing grace that restores our sight, and that amazing grace that delivers us. As we emerge from Easter, what new beginning is God inviting you into? Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning for the gift of your scriptures. And for all the things that you show us through them. We're grateful for the life that Jesus lived on earth. Not only because of all of the great theology that it underscores for us, but even more significantly for the way that Jesus embodies all of those things. That he shows us what things like grace and forgiveness and freedom look like as they are enfleshed in relationships. And we thank you, God, for this really beautiful example of the new beginning that the resurrection represents for Peter. For the restart, the reset, the new beginning that exists. And for reminding us, God, of the way that that's really true for each one of us. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be speaking to us this morning. As we emerge from this season of Lent and the celebration of Easter, that you might be showing us the places where we might experience your amazing grace. The places where we might experience a new beginning where we might experience a reset. The places where we might experience your forgiveness and all of the freedom that comes with that. Would you open us up to the truth of scripture and the truth of the story and the power of the resurrection and would you give us courage Father to believe into that in the way that John's gospel really invites us to that as we see Peter believing into all of those things despite the depths of his own experiences God would you give us that same courage to believe into you. And as we do that, would we find and experience that sweet sound of your amazing grace? 
We love you, Father, and we are so grateful for your gift of sacrificial love that bought all of those things for us out of your goodness and mercy. We love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.